Three, two, one, and we're live. Welcome to another episode of Hot Coffee Consulting. I'm joined this morning by Katie Jones, uh, Beeswax. Welcome, Katie. Good morning. Welcome. My first guest that actually doesn't drink caffeine, so you're the first guest of Hot Coffee Consulting. Uh, that Hot decaf actually, will work. Yeah, I think <laughs> we'll have to change the title for this show. Uh, so, look, thank you for joining me this morning. It's been a long time since we've sat down uh, and spoken. I think the last time we had a in-depth conversation, you were working over at Yahoo. Uh, so you've been to a few different places since then, and I thought we'd start by talking a little bit about you and your career and how it's progressed and the things that you've done. Okay, no problem. Where shall I start? <laughs> feel free to start at the very beginning. Um, oh gosh, I'm not sure I'll go that far back, um, but I was a, uh, I studied languages, and I think when you, when you graduate with a, I hadn't really thought about it before going to university, it's just a thing that I really loved. And I graduated, and I was like, oh, wait, well, I, I don't want to be a teacher. What am I going to do? Which languages? Um, French and Spanish. Okay. And I thought, oh, I'll be, I'll be a professional translator. And I stayed on, I got a master's in, um, in translation. And I realized that most translation work was translating, you know, the sort of Apple terms and conditions or yeah. your washing machine manual. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, nothing worse than that. You're pretty though. You've got a master's and everything. Um, I got some funding for it, which helped. Um, but... During my, um, during my studies, I spent a year working at a law firm, and I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I got there, ready to, um, you know, ready to do all this lawyering, and you know, I thought it would be a paralegal or that sort of thing. And I got there, and um, the role that they'd assigned to me for my like, year-long placement was to rebuild their intranet and translate it into English for the English lawyers within the business. Right. And so this is going back to 2000, so I, suddenly I... I, you know, I got to the end of that, and I was like, "Well, I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to work on the internet. The internet's cool." Um, Said so no one ever who's like coding. <laughs> so um, it kind of then when you know when I got to graduating, I was like, "Well, what kind of careers can I do in the internet where I can use my languages?" And I just sort of fell into advertising, um, and I did a few years, you know, starting out selling classified ads, you know, in the um, in B2B publications and so on, worked my way up. And then um, the big change came in around 2008 when I moved to London and um, I took a job working at Yahoo. And I'd initially signed up to work on search, but obviously they'd just bought the right media exchange at the end of 2007, that deal was completing. And so when I got there in 2008, I was doing predominantly search, but starting to do, it wasn't even programmatic then, just exchange-based buying and performance display. And um, over two or three years, um, the amount of time I spent on search slowed and dwindled and dwindled, and the amount of time I spent on um, on what became programmatic grew and grew. And so, What's yes. it like for somebody like you then that's seen this industry and this ecosystem, I mean, not since its very beginnings, but at a very early stage, then develop over the past what, decade now? I mean... It- I'm so jealous I wasn't trying to, like, if I was trading media now, the tools that you have as a trader are, like, <laughs> unbelievable compared to what we were doing. You know, I was building, I'd have, you know, I'd have, like, 40, 50 lines on a campaign just to try and get any kind of optimization. Um, it was, everything was super manual. Um, uh, not a beeswax plug. We work with a company called Metamarkets who powers some of our re- reporting. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw it, I literally was jumping up and down in my chair, being like, this would have saved me four hours a day. Yeah. You know, you were consistently, you know, sort of pulling reports from one platform 
um, a different type of report and then having to sort of do V lookups, H lookups to mesh the two reports together to then be able to like pivot table. I, I must have spent half my day just in like in Excel. Yeah. And now I see like, you know, like, you know, you can easily like push a few buttons and get that information in a few clicks. Um, it, it's become much, much easier. And um, it, it's great, but at the end of the day, it's still the same kind of basics, you know, and you know, I had to have someone explain to me, you know, what does optimization, you know, when, what, what do you mean I have to optimize this campaign? And they're like, well, just, you know, spend more of the money on the stuff that's working and less of the stuff on the, that's not working. And I think kind of growing up in it and being hands to, having been hands to the keyboard, you have a much better appreciation of what everyone is doing and how they're trying to, uh, you know, everyone's just trying to do the best thing, they're trying to optimize, they're trying to get the best results for their customers. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I guess um, when you've been in the industry for as long as you've been in the industry, at some point you do just start to see those basic principles that you were kind of bred into start to take over more and more, I guess, in, in terms of the day-to-day -day conversations that you're having and the, maybe the tools that you're using or the technologies, the automation that you have to hand is, is a great way of uh, implementing better processes, more efficient processes, but those principles stay the same. Yeah, ex ex exactly that. You know, the, the guiding principles and the direction of travel is the same, but I think, um, I think you know, the world is getting smarter. The tools are, the tools are getting better to enable you to be smarter. And um, I think that the speed of change is, is really incredible on that, that trajectory. So you're at Yahoo uh, and you're working on exchange-based sales? Um, so a mixture. I started out sort of running campaigns, started out then previously I'd always been in sales roles, started going out more with the sales team to, to customers and I um, ended up, um, yes, in a, in a kind of sales specialist role working with a team of analysts who, would start, who took over the campaign management. They were better at the optimization than me. <laughs> so um, they took uh, that on and I spent more time sort of um, talking to customers, whether that was advertisers or, um, or folks within agencies. I moved out to Dubai to set up programmatic across Middle East, North Africa. I moved back and I wanted to try and um, get more breadth of European experience. So I um, worked across uh, Benelux. So I was mm -hmm. out in Belgium and the Netherlands most months. Uh, then I moved out to the US um, to uh, take the Yahoo DSP as that was launching to market. Um, based out of New York and that was amazing fun and, and a really sort of different uh, different pace, really different to be talking about platforms rather than media. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I, uh, I actually moved back with Yahoo, <laughs> don't, don't, don't ask how they signed off the uh, relocation. Moved back and was running um, programmatic across Northern Europe for, for Yahoo, the, the commercial side of that. So. Uh, so Having gone into each of those different markets, different regions, what was the, the biggest difference, I guess, or, you know, talk a little bit about your experience. Uh, when did you go to Dubai? Uh, I was out there in 2011. So, the, wow, so really quite early on. Yeah, the agency trading desks were just being set up. Um, uh, Rolly, who works with your UK team, um, moved out at a similar time to me to set up the, I think it was AOD at the time. Um, yep, so, <laughs> like, like the cogs are whirring in my head. It's, we do this. We, we're recording this early in the morning, just <laughs> in case anyone is listening to this late in the evening and wondering why I sound like I haven't had my cup of hot coffee this morning. Um, 
So yeah, it was um, Dubai in 2011. I think it was probably the same um, in a lot of places at that sort of time. I would go to one meeting and it would be, you know, what's CPM? Mm -hmm. And the next meeting would be, you know, what QPS can you handle and where's your nearest data center? And it, it was just a, a huge variety of different um, kind of levels of, of expertise. And I think that that's probably the biggest change. It, it, you know, the, the industry has has evened out. Even if you go and you're speaking to people from a, you know, in a creative agency or um, or, or brand direct, um, you know, kind of the the general level of understanding is is much more consistent now than it. Yeah, I'd was. agree with that actually. Yeah, but and then you said when you moved out to New York, that was the first time. There was a big step change in the way that people were talking about platforms over and above media. So that was presumably on the basis that they were a little further ahead just in terms of their overall level of sophistication or it was a difference in... I, mean, I think by that time I was looking at, you know, looking at when did I move out there, 2013, 14. And um, I think that's really when the switch had fully happened. It was everyone was talking about audience and that's and that, that data play. And, mm -hmm. and um, Yahoo at that, at that time had such a strong... Data offering. I mean, I think any of the, you know, the, the Verizon offering now is still strong, you know, and, and data-led uh, proposition. And so I think that was probably the biggest difference. People, you know, the, the contextual piece had sort of yeah, that horse had bolted by by then. And it's interesting now to see more people interested in context and coming coming, coming back, back to that, um, you know. And so uh, and so and yes, and that was my first time then. Working in the, in the US, um, clients have a very different relationship there. And that was my first sort of time really um, with a much bigger focus client direct um, rather than sort of agency focus. There was a specific team talking about agency adoption of, our, yeah. of the Yahoo tools. Um, and so a lot of my time was spent talking to brands who were either in-housing hands to keyboard or, or in-housing their contracts and they wanted to understand yeah, what they, why they might want to work with us. And that was in 2013, so presumably you've seen that trend just increase and go beyond the US and into the European market and beyond that. Yes, I think it's taken a bit longer to come out of the US. I think even going back to sort of 14, 15, there were still pretty big, there were already pretty big movements in that direction in the US. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the sort of Pitcher-Palooza um, kind of period through that summer of 2016, again, moved that on even further and um, and I think it's it's now sort of really creeping through Europe tends to be the direct-to-consumer sort of digital first um, kind of modern new brands who seem to be embracing the kind of I don't know I don't even know there's, there's so many different flavors of in-housing but the, the kind of the the full hands to keyboard piece mm -hmm. um, whereas I think um, sort of in-housing of contracts, um, wanting transparency. I mean, it's something that's, um, that has been, you know, this agency and group has spearheaded for a long time here um, in terms of being more transparent and giving customers more control and more choice. Um, so I think just the in-housing of contracts is something that we see a, see a lot in, in Europe. Yeah, I agree. I'd say it's probably um, a hybrid model and dependent upon the advertiser, dependent upon the vertical. Um, but certainly that in-housing of, of contracting and 
that will, I think, for advertisers to invest more in their own data and technology infrastructure without necessarily having the full resource or capability or skill set within their own teams to then manage that on an ongoing basis. And that's kind of where we are at the minute. Advertisers will contract it. Uh, a lot of them will, with the help of agencies and consultants, design it and implement it. Uh, but then the management of that on an ongoing basis, having that really uh, power the media and the communications process is still something I think that they rely pretty heavily on external partners to deliver. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think it depends a bit on the brand, mm. um, but uh, but yes, definitely that kind of that combined that sort of strength in yeah owning your own data and retaining that that knowledge, having the um, ability to access and, and check through the systems, having your own login, being able to pull your own reports is is one thing, but it's very different to actually you know, day-to-day -day trafficking, optimizing the campaigns. There was um, a couple of articles in the past couple of weeks about, um, well, I guess, the overinvestment in MarTech, because it's now, I think, according to the Gartner CMO survey, mm. the largest uh, proportion of, uh, the single largest proportion of investment that CMOs are making is, is MarTech and technology-based uh, investment. And the general gist of the report was that it's been oversold and that advertisers have bought too much into the power of marketing technology and not enough into the resource uh, and the processes that sit behind that and underpin it. And then because of that, haven't been able to maximize the value of that, of that technology. And so I don't know whether or not we're going to start to see, I mean, certainly the point of the argument in the article is we're going to see a correction in this and, and you know, maybe a pullback in investment in solutions and platforms um, in favor of more uh, process and resource and operational expenditure to support those solutions. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but um, it certainly feels like we're at a point of correction where, uh, I guess from my perspective, I've seen advertisers and agencies make investments in technologies and in solutions and in platforms without necessarily having a plan in place or an idea as to where they want to get to. Um, and in those cases, there is a real challenge in then operationalizing and maximizing the value of that capability. And so maybe it's more a correction in the thought process that goes behind investments in technology. Yeah, I think you're right. Do you know, um, are you a South Park fan? Do you, do I'm you, <laughs> that, um, Google this after this, or I don't know if you can, uh, you know, attach a link to it. There's an, there's an amazing um, episode where there are a load of gnomes who steal underpants from across South Park. And the, uh, the kids, the South Park kids, figure out what's going on. They go and see the gnomes. And the gnomes are like, phase one, collect underpants. And then, you know, they're like, but Carmen's like, well, what's phase two? And they're like, I don't know, but phase three is profit. And, and I think it's, it's a little bit to that. I think with everything that you're doing, you should understand why you're doing it and what the aim is and what the steps are to get to that, that end goal. And so I think, I think you're right, you know, brands or agencies shouldn't be committing to technology unless they know what problem it's going to solve and how they're going to enable it to solve that problem because tech won't solve it no. on its own. Otherwise, it's just a load of gnomes and a load of pants. I'll send you that clip. <laughs> I think there's an aspect of just keeping up with the Joneses, right? I mean, you see this with the zeitgeist on uh, Martech and AdTech where... CBT, for example. Oh, I thought you were going to do blockchain then, because that's just totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, fill in the blanks on, uh, on the latest hot topic in uh, 
standardizing technology, but you know, a new piece of tech, a new acronym launches, and it's very hot, and everybody wants to be engaged with it, and then all of a sudden it's on every single RFI, uh, without, I think, too much thought going behind, to your point, what problem it is that that solves, and how it would integrate and be interoperable with the wider, broader uh, strategy of the business. Yeah. So, you left Yahoo, and where did you go? Um, I went to set up the Pangea Alliance, uh, based just okay. around the corner from you. I was mostly uh, mostly sitting in the Guardian offices. Well, that's really interesting. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's such a um, it's it's a sort of an amazing thing to to do. I, I care passionately about premium publishers, premium content. I read a number of the titles within <laughs> within the alliance on a regular basis, and I really wanted to uh, to be part of um, what they were trying to build. And uh, it was. Um, it was such an honour to be part of that team with, you know, five really, um, you know, amazing brands and seeing the continuation of that, you know, through Europe, so many exchange, so many alliances came together to follow the the lead that Pangea had sort of started, and so it was great to be able to be part of that. And now to see, um, you know, Pangea is still going, um, uh, run out now out of the Turner offices, um, and. Um, to see uh, that continue, but then sort of the next phase with the ozone project um, launching, I think it's a um, it's great to see um, more collaboration between those you know such great brands and seeing that spreading to um, you know to other media, seeing what's what's happening with RTL Connect and with which has been going for a really long time, but then um, the launch of the European Broadcaster Exchange um, and so on, and what Global did across. Um, across DAX, there's been, you know, a huge rise of what I would call alliances, and so it was great to be part of sort of what I consider the, the first one <laughs> in the UK. You kicked off the trend. Yeah, something like that. There's something of an economic purist in me that doesn't seem to uh, feel very comfortable with the idea of alliances, if I'm completely honest. And I think it's not in principle. I like mm. the idea of publishers coming together, collaborating. I think they've come in for a real drumming over the past decade or so uh, and I believe very much in a free press and I believe very much in diversity of opportunity and quality in editorial and so I, I want them to succeed I want them to do very well but there's something about them coming together from a political and operational standpoint that's never really sat very well with me just in terms of how they divvy up inventory and audiences and how it you know, actually is fulfilled through what I assume to be and correct me if I'm wrong a fairly political environment with these different you know, entities, different individuals of different sizes, of different magnitudes. Uh, I just feel like the personality aspect would come into play on any of these types of things, and uh, you ultimately wouldn't get what it is you were hoping to to get to. It would break down at some point. I don't know if I'm just completely way offline there, but. I mean, I think um, I think you should have uh, you should ask Craig and Danny to come in to uh, to do this podcast to defend what they're doing. But no, I think um, I think overall you're looking. Um, it's it's all about the audience. It comes down to the the data that you've got at the heart of it. Um, if you're a um, if you're looking to target um, that audience who's engaged with current affairs, um, they tend to be smarter, more aff affluent um, or, uh, segments. Of the population, mm -hmm. being able to target them in a quality premium context of news. You know, we're talking about the rise of, of context again. I think it's something that, you know, 
that, that brands and advertisers should really be looking at because they should want to have their 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 brand name associated with those titles and there are only quality titles within you know Pangea and um, you know and and within ozone and I think it's you know it's important to to value that that context and that placement I mean I guess the argument would be why not I mean if they want to collaborate if they want to form an alliance then that only offers you more options and opportunities well I, ideally an easier way to access that sure. as well instead of making you know four phone calls you make one um, and um, you know instead of in, instead of targeting four different deal IDs you can target um, you know across the the entire suite because generally in my experience brands are either comfortable with news or they have some kind of bugbear where they just don't want to be in a, in a news environment um, and so you know assuming you're working with someone who's Who's happy with news? You know, if they want, if they're happy being in the Telegraph, why would they not also want to be in the Times? Sure. And what's the major differences, um, if there are any, um, between Ozone and Pangea, just in terms of the the way in which it's been constructed? Because, as I understand it, hearsay, um, but people have told me, well, Ozone's different from Pangea because Ozone's a completely separate legal entity, and it's been set up in a completely different fashion to be able to do things that maybe Pangea couldn't do because it didn't have that separation of church and state? I think the industry's really moved on hugely in the last in the last two, three years. So since the you know, since the idea of Pangea was formed, um, there have been huge changes in terms of technology. Um, you know, if you think about the rise of header bidding, that you talked about CDPs and and um, and the, the changes that have gone on in the, the data side of things. Um, I think there's been changes in technology, and I think there's also been changes in in mindset. The the, um, the the team now at Ozone are in a totally independent space, and so there's a you know that there is more that um, that they can do, and they um, they are um, kind of I think taking it a, a step you know a step further, going going a bit beyond um, where uh, where Pangea was able was able to. Definitely going to have to have one of these people come in and talk. About you do. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make the introductions for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, uh, Pangea, and then where did you go after Pangea? Um, I went to out of home. So, uh, I went over to join the team at Clear Channel. Yeah. Um, and uh, That was a really interesting move. And at the time, when you moved over yes. to Clear Channel, I was having quite a lot of discussions with out of home businesses uh, yes. from uh, the BMP perspective seeing them wanting to get far more integrated with data uh, to be able to access data and to be able to become far more data driven in, in their approach uh, and as i was having those conversations i think literally as i was leaving uh, the offices of an out of home uh, supplier having had one of those discussions i saw on linkedin that you'd moved over as i think head of innovation yes yeah, so i was a commercial innovation director so um people were always hitting me up on linkedin about you know sort of you know, new LEDs or different types of screens, and I had to sort of disappointingly tell them that no, that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't me. Um, I was really focused on how um, how the how the inventory was traded and, and innovating in, in in that direction. And I mean, it's amazing the the revolution that's happened in that sector yeah. over the last few years. If you go back, you know, five six years, there were no digital panels, or you know, there were very very few, and um, 
it's incredibly expensive for those companies to put them in. If you think about it, you're not just, you know, you're buying a ginormous telly yeah. that's got to stand in the street, so it's got to be able to withstand, you know, a bus banging into it or, you know, drunk people on a Friday night, <laughs> whatever. Um, um, but not only that, you know, you've got to talk to the, the council, you probably have to, you know, dig up the, 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 the road or the pavement to, to connect power, um, to connect or have some way of it um, connecting to the internet to access the, the ads that it's going to display. So there's a huge amount of infrastructure investment that's gone into making uh, digital out of home um, possible and, and expanding that. And so it's really um, fascinating to then see once you've got those digital panels in the ground, what can you do with them? Yeah. And you know, yes, with your time in, in data, you, you'll you'll know there's so much more that you can do when you're changing a creative every ten seconds than if you're just posting up a, a piece of paper that's going to be there for, for two weeks. But ultimately, why? I think when people think about programmatic, I kind of think about two elements. There's the element of targeting, addressability, and um, and that sort of um, making sure, you know, right ad, right time, um, and so on. There's also really an element around automation and, um, and just making it easier to transact. Mm -hmm. And I think out of home stands to benefit from, from both of those scenarios. Um, but I do think using, there's no reason why you can't start to use data better to plan even your, you know, your two week paper out of home campaigns. Yeah, one hundred percent. We were talking about the root uh, survey and yes. finding ways of trying to uh, make that somewhat more dynamic and, and, and enrich it with other types of, of, of data. Uh, what struck me was just the huge appetite within that part of the industry for, as you said, automation, better efficiency, for better trading models, um, more programmatic and digital-based trading models. And so, what was the what was the kind of work that you were doing whilst you were at? Clear channel. What were the big focuses of the business? So uh, I think it's quite interesting because it's actually appetite on both sides. So the, the um, you know the buyers and sellers are super keen to um, to automate and to make things you know enable things to move faster. Um, but there's also a huge amount of goodwill to to out of home. Out of home is actually I mean if you look at the sort of audience sentiment analysis, out of home is consistently the type of advertising that people love the most. If you're stuck at a bus stop. And you know you're you're out of data or you're out of battery on your phone. Um, you know there's nothing for you to do but read an ad or look at an ad. And you almost you know similarly you know if you're on the if you're on the tube you know you don't want to have you know it's literally illegal in London to actually look at someone or to make conversation. So you're you're, you're relying on having something else to look at. And so um, it's interesting that there's there's also then huge appetite from advertisers to be involved in. That revolution of the medium because it's a medium that is so has such a huge opportunity to it. You know, it's beautifully huge canvases compared to the you know the 300 by 250 whatever you're looking at yeah. online. Um, and so the ability to make that more um, more addressable, more relevant is um, is certainly a, a huge opportunity. So um, so we were at Clear Channel. Um, I was looking at you know how do we make our inventory available. Um, I think it's a, a little bit um, more like the process that the TV teams are going through at the moment. Um, 
programmatic kind of sprang out in the digital space on the basis that in you know in 2005-6 publishers were barely monetizing 30% of their inventory you know there was 70% that was going unsold if you've got 70% of your inventory unsold you'll happily sell it at 10 cents CPM because sure. you're still probably making an extra million quid a quarter you know happy days um, in in TV in in out of home there's no remnant there just there isn't it doesn't exist you know um i can't i remember my first meeting you know within the first week or so i sat down with the commercial team and i was like well you know what's your sell-through rate and they're like 100 percent. and i was like what <laughs> and so and, and so you're not solving for the same problem yeah certainly on the media owner side and the publisher side um you know in as as digital media grew um, you've seen different trading models come about. So the rise, you know, through 2013-14 of like the private marketplace, and then through to, to guaranteed deals and, and PGD that people talk about, and that, that happens a lot more now. You know, that's come about because effectively, the, the, while supply has grown, demand has outpaced supply, mm-hmm. and so digital is now in a in a much better position than it was. You know, going back, you know, more than a decade. Um, I think when you look at TV out of home, they're coming at it from the other perspective. So the opportunity is not increasing fill rate because you can't increase above 100%. Yep. Um, it's really about then how do we make that, um, how do we make those ads more relevant to improve the advertiser experience, but also to improve the experience of, of the users in the street and or the users, the, the, the humans in the street, the people in the street. And so it was really interesting to, to, to look at research that shows um, how much better users, in, ah, I keep saying users, you can tell them back in digital, <laughs> can't you? <laughs> how much more people engage with content that is relevant to them. So um, looking at including place names, including times of day, including the, the environment that you're in, would really include, improve um, brand favorability, run recall, um, and all of those sort of big important um, objectives. And so, um, so there I was really looking at you know, as a media owner in that space, um, what is the, the right path? Because there was a lot of pressure to, you know, go down and go down the online route and just, you know, make the infantry available on the open, you know, on the open RTB. That's not necessarily the right solution for the media owners or for the advertisers. If you, you know, if you didn't book your campaign in advance and you've got a film launch on, on you know, on Friday, by Thursday evening, if you try and run an ad, there's no supply available. Yeah. Um, so it, it doesn't work for either side of the, the industry. So it's uh, an <clears> in, interesting, very, very interesting space. It's really interesting because obviously the direction of travel across the industry is towards automation, innovation uh, within programmatic, uh, etc. And I think to your point, whether or not that necessarily aligns with the overall business objective can in some cases be a, a point of contention it's not always cut and dry that that's the unique towards automation uh, towards programmatic uh, trading models and mechanisms the more successful the business overall will be it's not always necessarily the case that that's that that's true but I'm I conscious think right. I think thinking about the why is important yes that's a much better way of uh, summarizing <laughs> I don't know about that. So I'm conscious of time. I want to make sure uh, we get on to beeswax, which is where you are currently. 
Um, yes, I joined the team just over six months ago now um, in the UK. We're, um, uh, we closed our Series B um, at the end of last year and announced that in January. And um, we're, we're growing great guns. Um, so this is a completely new adventure for you and far more focused, correct me if I'm wrong, on the technology side of the ecosystem. Yes, I mean, we're effectively um, a... If you were putting us in a box in the Lumascape, <laughs> so put me in a box, <laughs> um, we're very firmly in the, in the DSP space, um, but we're very, very different to any of the legacy DSPs that exist. All of the technology has been built in the last um, three years or so, mm-hmm. and so... I started my first week and I uh, sat down with my account manager and I said, right, James, how much time do we do you spend every week troubleshooting PMPs? He said, none. I absolutely panicked. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, I've joined a DSP that doesn't support deal IDs. What am I going to do? How do I get out of this? And he's like, no, 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 no don't panic. Everything just works. And, um, and that's the same whether we're talking about you know, deal IDs, but also um, in in-app environments. We can do things like... Um, uh, in-app retargeting and so on that, that's really important as we were talking earlier for those direct-to-consumer digital first brands who often you know have a, an app-led business um, we can do we do a, a huge amount of work in connected TV um, and, and and that sort of space and I think a lot of that just comes out of the fact that um, the technology um, is new and we haven't had to bolt any of these things on top we were, we were Built on the basis that it's not necessarily a cookie that you want to decision on. It might be a um, a mobile ID, an IDFA. It might be a um, an IP address. It could be any other different signal that you can capture. And then um, I think the thing that was the biggest draw for me um, was around um, our pricing model. So we don't charge a percentage of media. Okay. I can see your face, you're like mind blown. (laughs) Um, We charge a fixed monthly fee based on the amount of bid requests, the volume of bid requests that your bidder is able to handle. So because we don't have seats, each customer, um, we build a whole new DSP, a whole new instance of the DSP for each customer. Mm -hmm. So each customer can decide exactly what supply they want access to. And based on that volume of supply, based on the volume of bid requests, we charge a fixed monthly fee. And... um, that, um, for me, is really fair. I think that the, the, the realization I had moving from Yahoo to Pangea was um, that the entire programmatic ecosystem up to now has been set up to penalize premium. If you go and you buy an ad, and these are not accurate or real prices, let's just use imaginary numbers. If you go and you buy an ad on Yahoo at $1, and you go and you buy an ad on the FP at $50, you're going to pay your DSP for executing that transaction. I'm going to use industry average, right? The trade desk just came out saying they're making 20% margin in their, in their latest results. So um, you, in that scenario, you would be paying, for the Yahoo impression, you'll pay 20 cents. Mm-hmm. For the FT impression, you would pay $10. It costs the DSP exactly the same amount to render, you know, render an MPU in either space. Why would you pay... Why would there be such a huge difference in terms of what you're paying your platform to deliver? It just doesn't make sense, and it's just not fair. Um, and I think it's a, it's a, you know, if you're a brand who cares about publishers and who wants to be making sure the biggest part of their budget is being used on working media, paying a percentage of media um, to your platforms just is, is not fair. 
and um, that's been that was one of the, the biggest deciders in me uh, in me getting involved with and, and joining the team of beeswax to be able to make a difference to how the how the industry operates. Yeah, well, I mean, you make a very strong case beyond um, the, the commercial model and the accountancy metrics. What are the major differences uh, in the way that beeswax operates, and who is it fair? Uh, to compare beeswax to just uh, for the purposes of comparison, is it is it fair to compare them to say a, a trade desk, um, or is it is it fairer to compare them to a, a, an web or? Um, so th- there's kind of no one who does exactly what we do, so it's really hard to say where where we sit. Um, I think the the other huge difference, apart from our um, billing mechanics. And, is um, is around our ability to, again because we don't have seats, um, bringing the ability for an advertiser to bring their own algorithm to determine the the price and the creative that they're entering into the auction, mm-hmm. and so for um, about fifty percent of our customers actually do that. I was staggered by that number. I just can't believe that fifty percent of people are you know have a data science team and want to do that. But especially in that that digital first kind of brand, most people actually do have data science teams. They use them to improve their products. Why would they not use them to also improve their their media and their marketing? And so I think if people out, you can use us as an out-of-the-box DSP on, you know, it takes us a day to build a bidder for someone. Don't tell my team, it takes me that (laughs) official SLA 48 hours. (laughs) So if you signed a contract, you wanted to use us, you could use us out of the box using our own algorithms, you know, the the very next day. Um, so you can use us as you would use any other DSP, um, but just with a, a very different um, pricing model and better control over the supply that you have access to. Um, or if you were perhaps someone who, I don't know, if you if you went back five five to sort of ten years, you see people who were actually building their own DSPs. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to have, you know, by building your own DSP, the, the the reason that people do that is that they want to control the price they're putting into the auction. Um, building your own DSP will take you six months to a year. It's incredibly costly um, and and slow moving. So the idea of the bidder as a ser- bidder as a service kind of proposition that, that Beeswax brings to market is that you know don't build your own DSP. <laughs> it's, we'll do all of the boring stuff for you. That's not the official tagline. <laughs> but uh, you know, the, in, if you think about the components of a, of a DSP, it's connection into supply. Um, it's you know, it, it's your access to the auction house, getting into the right room where the right thing is being auctioned, and the ability to put your hands up. If you want to be the person to, if you want to call out the number yourself and determine what that number is yourself, you can do that with us. Or if you want to, you can use this as a regular DSP and we'll call out a number for you. Um, but those two ways of working kind of um, put us in a very, very unique space. Do you think it's, um, well, is it fair to say that your solution is best suited to those advertisers and maybe agencies as well that are a little further ahead in their thinking around RTB and programmatic? I mean, just that statistic, 50% of the clients that you have bringing their own data sciences capability, bringing their own algorithms, that just from an outsider looking in would lead me to believe that you're talking about a more sophisticated client than the average, let's say. 
I think uh, yes and no. Um, the clients who go on to build their own al algorithms, yes, they do tend to be much more um, sophisticated, and they tend to have sort of, you know, hit the hit the maximum capacity of what they can achieve on DB three hundred and sixty, or you know, or another another DSP. They want to do something a bit more a bit more special. They'll work with us for that reason. The other reason is that there's someone with very unique data, and right now, if you're using a DSP with seats, you're conversion data will feed into the single optimization layer that sits under the entire DSP. So even if you're, you know, I'm not making any casting aspersions about anything they're doing there. There are, you know, firm Chinese walls between each seat, definitely. But the platform learns, you know, what makes a, um, you know, if you've got BMW and Mercedes on the same platform and the trader set up, a, set up both campaigns for both customers trying to, um, find, you know, drive test drives for a, for a new luxury sports car. That platform learns what makes a, what makes a conversion or what makes a click, what makes a conversion in a, for a luxury automotive customer. And that feeds into their algorithm. So we have some customers who want to build their own algorithm just because they don't want to give their data to their, to their customers. Other people just want, just want to work with us because they're buying at scale and paying, you know, if you're buying a lot of video, paying you know, anywhere but you know, fifteen to twenty percent to a platform to do that for you just bonkers. It's far too much money. Um, just doesn't make doesn't make sense when you're looking at you know CPMs of fifteen you know fifteen twenty quid. Why on earth would you pay a you know a fifteen to twenty percent fee on that? And um, I read an article the other day, and you're more of an expert in this field than I am, so you'll probably have to interpret my line of questioning. But <coughs> excuse me, does your platform? Um, help people get around this issue where um, DSPs that have multiple seats can effectively decide to ignore certain bids uh, through their own platform in favor of altering the overall auction mechanics. So um, the, the general gist of the article was the fact that if you had, let's say, a second price auction model and you had one advertiser on one of your seats that was willing to pay $10 for an impression. <clears throat> and then you also had another advertiser on another seat within your DSP that was willing to pay eight and then six and then five and so on and so forth. You could effectively ignore some of those bids in the middle of the, uh, of the pile in order to ensure that the second price that you're ultimately going to pay is towards the lower end of the scale. Now, I'm not sure if that makes any kind of sense at all yeah, exactly. But, but, but you, yes, you're right. Because because you have your own instance of the bidder, if you want to bid, your bid goes into the auction. There's there's no way that, you know, we, we don't take a percentage of media. And so there's absolutely zero interest for us in skewing the auction. Um, similarly, because we're not involved in the supply side, we're purely focused on the demand side. Mm -hmm. We don't care who you buy from. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's been a lot of coverage about if you're on a particular platform that has both a buy side and a sell side um, you can you know there's a few people we're talking about and um, you know your your supply will just automatically get routed to, to your sorry your demand will get routed to their, their supply as soon as you stop taking a percentage of media you start acting more fairly in the in the best interests of each individual customer great I think that's probably a very good place to leave things 
Thank you. I've enjoyed this morning so much. What a good conversation. Yeah, thank you very much, Katie. Appreciate it.